0: Welcome to the Limitless Grit Podcast, where we have conversations with social entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and ordinary people who are achieving extraordinary results. And now, here is your host, Shristi Gajarel. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Limitless Grit Podcast. Super, super excited about this one because it is with Robert E. Fulilove. He is a Associate Dean for Community and Minority Affairs at Columbia University. He's also been professor there for a long, long time. But what makes him so special and why I was so attracted to his story is because he has had a very, very interesting life, starting in Mississippi in 1964 during Freedom Summer, where he worked for um civil rights movement. Also serving in communities that have produced reports on substance abuse, addiction, HIV, AIDS and being an advocate for why AIDS was so widespread in minority community and what could have been done. He is also teaches courses in New York State Prison that are part of the Bard College Prison Initiative and serves as a senior advisor for BPI Public Health Programme. I mean, I can go on and on about how much his work has impacted our country and in this world and how he's still making people's life better, but I want you to hear from him. So without further ado, everyone, Robert A. Fully Love. Enjoy. Robert, welcome to the show. How are you today? Very well, thank you. You know, I've had the opportunity to research you and learn about you, but for people who are not familiar with your work or are not familiar with what you've done in public health. If you want to give us a little background.
1: Sure. I am currently a professor of social medical sciences and the Dean for Community and Minority Affairs at the Mailman School of Public Health, which is part of Columbia University. I've been engaged in public health research, notably in the area of HIV AIDS since 1986. And much of the work that I've done since those uh, original efforts way back when, really been to focus on all of the factors that link all of the conditions that made the HIV pandemic here in the United States possible, and the social conditions that have done a great deal to make them as problematic as they are today. So I've worked in a variety of fields, sexually transmitted diseases, uh, violence, drug abuse, addiction, But also recently, I've spent a lot of time looking at mass incarceration, which is one of the factors that I think has not only driven the HIV-AIDS epidemic in Black and Latino populations here in the U.S., I think it's one of the major contributors to what we in public health describe as health disparities. So that's a brief summary. That's what I've been doing, and uh, continues to occupy my days, as they say, and uh, give me a lot of interesting material to Present to my students uh, the moment that I'm teaching.
0: I want to talk more about your work later, but both of your your parents and your grandfather were physicians, and you know you come from an amazing background. So has that inspired you to be a public servant? Yeah,
1: uh, I am a World War II baby, born in 1944, which means that in the post war period when I was growing up. The civil rights movement was at its height. My father and grandfather were both physicians from Mississippi, and because Mississippi, back in the 1950s and 60s, was one of the battlegrounds for civil rights, when I became interested in becoming involved in the civil rights struggle, I had the full support of my dad, who thought that that kind of uh, public engagement in the problems that the nation was confronted. Confronting was was really something that he thought I should always be about. And uh, I think I'm one of the rare folk who didn't rebel against his parents in the 1960s. My acts of rebellion and all the things that I did against the war in Vietnam and for the civil rights movement really had their full support, which made me something of a unique individual. Wow.
0: I came to America almost nine years ago. I'm from Nepal. So... I just started learning about American history just nine years ago and understand depression and everything that was going on in this country. So, like, your parents were physicians in Mississippi in 1940s and 50s. How was it being a physician in, like, one of the most conservative states at that time?
1: Well, not just conservative, one of the most rigidly segregated. The Black Codes, which is a term that is often used to describe the system of laws and regulations that limited the movements and the access of African-Americans in particular, those were really peculiar to the South, and it was my father and my grandfather who were physicians. My mom had some medical training, but uh, her her talents and her work was really in another area. That said, in a rigidly segregated America where access to health care, especially in a state like Mississippi, was very, very restricted it was very difficult for African-Americans just to get access to medical care. And their life expectancy in those states was extraordinarily low compared to what it is right now in the year 2017. So what made it difficult? The fact that hospital and clinic facilities were rigidly segregated. Access to the financing of uh, a medical practice was often extraordinarily difficult for African-American physicians. And then there was just the whole problem of... uh, Gaining access to many of the resources that physicians depend upon. Like, for example, the ability to attend lectures or to be trained by university hospital based physicians in an institution, for example, like Columbia University. Those opportunities were very, very restricted. And much of the training that African American physicians had was not as great as it could or should have been, which sort of contributed to the hardships and the challenges of practicing medicine in those kinds of circumstances. But uh, my father and grandfather were exceptionally lucky, mm-hmm. and I think it's fair to say exceptionally talented, because they not only survived, they did quite well. Wow. My dad was one of the first physicians, African-American physicians, to be board certified in urology and private practice way back in the 1940s. So that's sort of a testimony that kind of barrier breaking that uh, I think really describes the impact that uh, they had on their patients. And it gives you some sense of how well thought of they were as physicians, both um, in the communities that they served. They were very fortunate in that uh, their achievements and accomplishments had a great deal to do with providing them with the power and the resources necessary to do really quite exceptional work on behalf of their patients. And I think I benefited greatly from that legacy, even though I'm not a physician. The fact that I work, teach, and do research in a university hospital Mm -hmm. uh, is in some respects a function of uh, having come from a background where that was part of uh, the world in which I grew up.
0: I'm learning a lot about civil rights. And I just recently read this book called My Life on the Road by Gloria Steinman. And it's just feels like a different world from what I'm experiencing now, but how was it being in Mississippi during 1964 and fighting for the civil rights?
1: Very difficult, very challenging, but in many respects very rewarding. Uh, It was my first real engagement in what we call community organizing. Uh, The successes that we had that summer were significant. The hardships and the obstacles that we faced were considerable. Three of my colleagues were murdered the very first day of our project, Mississippi Freedom Summer, and it's a way of sort of describing the nature of the resistance that we met to our efforts simply to get American citizens who happen to be Black the opportunity to register to vote and actually exercise the power that is a part of the ballot. A lot of resistance, but a lot of very, very positive movement on the part of these communities. And although it had a lot of tragic aspects to it, overall, when I look back on that period, I think of it as one of the most important in my life, and certainly a turning point in American history.
0: Yeah, and I watched that picture of you. That was a really, really powerful picture as well.
1: That picture that you're referring to, me standing in front of a bus with colleagues in 1964, represents, for a lot of people what looks like a joyous celebration of what is about to be a really intense summer of engaging in political activity, community organizing, what have you. The truth of the matter is that particular photo was taken as part of what we were doing to send the first real contingent of civil rights workers from Ohio, where we've been trained, back to Mississippi or in Mississippi. And we were all aware of the fact that the night before, literally the night before, three of our colleagues had disappeared. Uh, We had all been appraised of the fact that this was dangerous work that we were doing, that it could cost our lives. We accepted the fact that the three who disappeared had probably been murdered, and in fact, they had been. And we were standing in that bus singing, We Shall Overcome, as much to raise our spirits and to create some sense that we should be and could be courageous as much as anything else. But it has become an iconic photo, an iconic image, if you will, of that era. And that picture, you're right, is all over the place. There are many versions of it, but they're all basically, I think, a commemoration of the spirit of youth, the spirit of commitment to something that was bigger than any of us, and kind of a notion that somehow or other what we were doing was both dangerous but absolutely necessary, and the fact that it had some positive outcomes. For example, by 1970, the state of Mississippi had more black elected officials than any other state in the United States. It's a way of sort of describing how successful those efforts were, and it's one of the reasons why, when we look back on it, it's with a certain amount of pride.
0: What made that happen? What made so many black officials to be elected and like be involved in community services? What work were you guys doing at that point?
1: Well, the summer project, the Mississippi Freedom Summer Project, was basically conceived because Mississippi was a state that had the majority of its population being African-American. Okay. So despite being the biggest slice of the population, they were the smallest slice of those who were registered to vote and who were actually able to vote. The figure hovers somewhere around 2 to 3%. African-Americans had been murdered violently, sometimes publicly, just for talking about exercising the right to vote. So the idea that you're going into a state that had a bloody resistance to any effort to organize Black people, to exercise political power, is what made the movement so important and so symbolic. It was intended to be an effort to say, let's go to the worst state possible and see if we can not eke out some set of victories that can help lead the way for the future of the civil rights movement. So in the three months with a lot of uh, coverage by the news media, very helpful because it helped give the nation a sense of what we were doing and why it was important. Communities organized, a political party was formed, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and large numbers of folk who had hungered for some way of becoming actively engaged in the civil rights movement found with us and our efforts, that they finally had an avenue to do what they knew was going to be necessary to change the status that they were struggling with in the state of Mississippi. Large-scale community engagement, successful efforts on our part to engage lots of people in the process of registering to vote, the passage of a Voting Rights Act in 1965, all of those led to a complete change in the atmosphere around registering to vote, Voting and the participation of African Americans in the political life of that state. I think it's fair to say that that was an example that encouraged, at least in that period of time, many, many other states and many of their civil rights movements to basically follow our lead. Community organizing, agitating for the right vote, thinking about putting up a slate of political candidates and having them for the first time in many states participate in electoral politics. That, those were all part of the, the the real improvements, part of the real achievements that I think I associate with that fateful summer, 1964.
0: Wow, that must be so rewarding. And, you know, I've, like, listened to so much of your content on YouTube, and you said, like, you spent a chunk of your life, uh, you know, fighting for rights of, um, like, HIV victims and talking about HIV a- AIDS. And, and in one of your lectures, you said, like, People were affected by HIV/AIDS as early as 1960s, but they didn't know about it until 1980s. How right. how could have our government or the world handled handled it better to not make this this big of an epidemic? You think? Well, part of what
1: I was trying to point out was the fact that the official beginning of our HIV/AIDS pandemic was at the point when in 1981, a number of young gay men presented to clinical facilities in Los Angeles with evidence of what we now know were the final stages, was the final stages of HIV disease, the disease that is created by the human immunodeficiency virus. However, what we were looking at was people, was a set of individuals who had probably been exposed to the virus and lived with it for a long period of time before it became visible in what we describe now as AIDS-defining illnesses. So with HIV, you can have a latent infection, one that stays in the body for 10, maybe 12 years before any symptoms appear. And it's probably fair to say that when we noticed people living with and struggling with HIV disease, we were looking at them pretty much in the end stage of the disease process. So if we subtract 10, 12 years, it suddenly becomes clear that the real beginnings of the epidemic that we're still dealing with today probably began sometime in the late 60s, early 70s. And what I point out in my talks is that the group that was most affected and the one that probably was invisible for the longest period of time was not gay men who were engaged in homosexual behaviors. It was actually... People who were injecting drugs, sharing their injection equipment with others, doing things, in other words, to maintain their high that represented the most efficient way of assuring that the virus would be transmitted. Mm -hmm. In the 1970s in this country, we declared a war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And with the formation of the Drug Enforcement Administration, By the time the 1980s began, we were really actively engaged in locking up and imprisoning people who were struggling with addictive illnesses, um, people who were largely arrested because they were dealing drugs as well as using drugs, and I point out in these talks that what that meant was the group that was at greatest risk to be infected was also the one that became part of mass incarceration which at least back in the 80s was thought to be the best way of controlling addictive disorders and controlling the people who were trying to deal drugs in many, many communities. It didn't succeed in limiting our fascination with drugs or our national struggles with drug abuse. Look at what's happening today with our opioid epidemic. And what it did instead was create a system of mass incarceration that is so powerful, we are number one in the world with respect to the number of our citizens that we lock up.
0: It's like 25% of the prison population in the world, right?
1: Exactly. We represent here in this nation 5% of the world's population. But as a nation, we incarcerate 25% of all the people doing time in a prison in the world. And that's right here within the borders of the U.S. Well, a large prison population, lots of folk who are in that population are there because of their engagement in drug trafficking and drug use means that, not surprisingly, for a very considerable period of time, one of the biggest reservoirs of HIV infection was our prisons because we had large numbers of people who'd been exposed to the virus in the course of their drug use and maybe in the course of other sexual activity that they were engaged in that put them in trouble and uh, placed them in the uh, eye of the law, if you will. So the fact that our prisons continue to be a place where you have a large reservoir of infection, even now, in 2017, is one way of describing how a set of policies that we enacted way back in the 1970s haunts us to this very day.
0: I think in 1970s, there were like 200,000 prisoners, and within a couple of years, then now there's like 7.3 million prisoners, and that's just absolutely absurd.
1: Right. 2.2 million are actually behind bars. The rest are not behind bars, but they're engage in what we now call community supervision, that's parole or probation. So they're still, technically speaking, struggling with uh, conviction. They are still considered to be felons, even though they are out of prison. And community supervision of this population is one of the most daunting tasks that I think we face as a nation. Uh, More and more of the folk who return to their communities from prison are in places that are known for, their lack of jobs, the lack of opportunities, the lack of uh, opportunities for educational advancement. It's a way of creating a vicious circle that seems to have no end. You're in the community, you're in the prison, you get out of prison, you go back to the community, you become a recidivism statistic, you go back to prison. This circulating pattern between the community on the one hand and the prisons on the other See a large number of health disparities in this country, not least of which would be HIV. It's one of the major ways in which, in my work, I try to link the problems that are associated with having such a large population locked up and the health problems that are associated with the communities to which they ultimately return. I'm saying that in many instances, they are two factors that feed on each other. And each factor in feeding upon the other makes that other factor that much worse.
0: In 2010, you started teaching public health courses in six New York State uh, prisoners that are part of Bard College Prison Initiative, and and uh, like after reading your work, I learned that 70% of prisoners go back to prison, so which is like a revolving cycle, right? How has that improved because of your courses?
1: Well, it's not my courses as much as it is more than anything else, providing men and women in prison with an opportunity to earn an education that's almost essential for finding employment in urban America. Uh, There are very, very few jobs in our cities that can be held by people who are unskilled workers. Increasingly, some level of education beyond high school is absolutely necessary if people are going to be able to survive economically. Providing inmates in prison who have not had an opportunity to go to college, but who have the talent to do so with college courses and ultimately a college degree means that when they leave, they're much more likely to enter the workforce, much more likely to get jobs an income, pay taxes, and be contributing c- citizens to their community than would be the case if that kind of educational credential was not available to them. With the possibility of getting a job, the ability to resist the temptation to get in the kinds of trouble that would uh, land you back in prison, that that temptation is successfully resisted. So we're very, very clear that as research has shown continually, the more training you give people when they are in prison, the greater the likelihood that they can use that training when they get out to refrain from and to resist the temptations that would put them in harm's way and bring them back to prison as recidivists. The better the level of education, the greater our ability to make sure that when people are out of prison, they can stay out of prison.
0: How many people are enrolled in the courses?
1: Well, right now, I think as probably nation, i mean, excuse me, in in the six prisons in the state of New York, probably has somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 to 200 students. It's a small college and a small program, but the fact that it has uh, had such spectacular successes with folks not only getting a degree, but managing to come back to their communities, in many instances, contributing to the improvement of the community. It's one of the reasons why the program is so highly regarded. It's not so much the sheer number of people that it is educated. It's just the fact that where it has done its work, the results, especially as viewed by uh, the reduction in recidivism associated with having participated in this program, that's really seen as quite consequential, quite significant. And it's one of the reasons why uh, I'm so pleased with how well our efforts have gone in that regard.
0: I mean, um, I did a mission trip when I was in college where we went to Chicago, one of the poorest areas. And we also worked with people who got out of prison. So there was a house and, you know, they were trying to get back into the society and we were just like talking with them and like, you know, helping them in any way possible. And, my perception completely changed because that was the first time I ever interacted with someone who just got out of a prison. And, and, you know, like, I just have a broader mindset, but I'm sure there are a lot of people who have never, ever interacted with people. And is there a way to volunteer or get involved? That,
1: I think, is increasingly becoming the province of community-based organizations that are created by formerly incarcerated persons. There are a number of such organizations here in New York City, and they are always anxious to engage as many people in their work as possible. So community service learning programs at a lot of universities are now providing people with the same opportunity that you had. However, for the moment, we don't really have a system that makes it easy for folks to volunteer in this capacity. And that's because there are a lot of programs that work with formerly incarcerated persons that are literally about helping them work, succeed, and do well in their communities. There are a lot of programs that train people when they're on parole to do a variety of different things, but they're not quite the same as the experience that you just described you had. I'm, like you, someone who's really trying to engage students at Columbia University in those kinds of programs, mm-hmm. and where you have... Uh, especially colleges and universities with these community service programs. Those are the ones that are most likely to help students at least become involved in these problems. Then there are other community-based organizations. I'm thinking about the Fortune Society here in the city of New York, which does a lot of work with formerly incarcerated folk and does, in fact, have a number of programs that encourage volunteers, as well as um, the input from a lot of people in the social service sector. I just want to say that as awareness of mass incarceration and its consequences grows, more and more opportunities are being created to engage the ordinary citizen, somebody like yourself, for example, in helping to make sure that uh, services are made available to this population And as a result of having services available will increase the likelihood that they'll remain in their communities and become uh, upright, upstanding citizens. That at least is the hope.
0: You've worked in prison for years, and what is one lesson that you have learned that has changed you?
1: The fact that as a college professor teaching college-level courses to populations on the inside, populations that are largely Black or Hispanic, I have been hugely impressed with the quality of the students that I've gotten. They're not simply charity cases. These are folks who have gone through a rigorous selection process and really have earned the right to be in a classroom. Well, the fact that they can sit through a lecture given by a professor at Columbia University, me, has led me to understand that in too many instances, some of the best minds in the communities from which these individuals come aren't in the community. Unfortunately, they're locked up. Providing that population with an opportunity to expand their intellectual resources, to become more involved in the life of the mind, to become trained to do important work when they return to the community. That's what I've learned as probably the most important lesson of my engagement, that number one, there's work to be done. Number two, there's a talented population in there that really deserves the kinds of services that we're providing. And number three, this just might be the solution to a lot of problems we're struggling with in society right now, where we worry about drug addiction, we worry about crime, we worry about what are the most effective ways of managing it. I think much of what I've seen with the Bard Prison Initiative says that the better job we do of education, before folks get to a point where they have to go to prison, or while they're in prison and in need of training. The more we can provide that, the better off the nation is likely to be.
0: Absolutely, and I think we are a you know, product of the people we surround ourselves with, and by giving them this opportunity to surround themselves with the Columbia professor or other individuals in their own cell who have similar mindset, you're giving them an option that there is a possibility, there is a future. If I really, really work hard, something could be come out of this.
1: And that's pretty much what they say themselves. Absolutely
0: right. I know uh, you have very short time, so I just want to ask two more questions. What Please. are what are three books you would recommend to our listeners so they? Uh,
1: very good. That's a good. That's a good question to pose. Number one, I believe that the average American has a very poor understanding of the history of the United States. We just don't teach it in the schools anymore. So a lot of contemporary problems have historical roots that if we understood better, that is to say, if we were more in contact with what were some of the original causes for the problems we had, we'd be in better shape. So I'm a very big fan of a book written by Howard Zinn that's probably now in its ninth publication, A People's History of the United States. Very important. The second book would be um, the one that... Uh, has been a bestseller for a number of number of years now, The New Jim Crow, um, which is an excellent treatment of the nature of incarceration in the United States and why, despite the election of Obama in 2008, we're not in a post-racialized society because too much of what we gave up at the end of the civil rights era has been replaced by the problems that are associated with being in prison and worse, getting out of prison and basically having the label felon follow you wherever you go. And I think the third book that I would urge people to read is one by someone who's near and dear to my heart, Mindy Thompson-Fuller, who wrote a book called Root Shock, which looks at public policy, specifically urban renewal, the impact it had on cities in the United States from the period 1949 to pretty much the present, and the ways in which that has impacted on a wide variety of problems problems related to public health, medicine, but also mass incarceration. So those are the three that I would recommend. I think they're worth the read. I think they're accessible, which is to say they're not so technical that the average reader would struggle with them. And because they're good reads, I think they have the capacity to teach, engage, involve, and enlighten. Couldn't ask for better.
0: I'll put that in my show notes so people can have links to those books. Um, I have another question. so. I interview most people who are interested in social entrepreneurship and, you know, um, entrepreneurship. So how can millennials from our generation do our part to help that population or to be a light that you were when you were in your 20s?
1: I like the idea of entrepreneurship because I think too much of what came out of the civil rights movement was social services. So while the social services help people in distress, they don't do that much to really change the conditions that people are living in. Uh, Social entrepreneurs, it seems to me, have one big attraction that, at least for me, makes them absolutely exceptional. They have the capacity to generate employment jobs. Uh, If one of the major contributors to mass incarceration is unemployment, and the things people do when they're struggling to earn a living, struggling to pay their bills, struggling to feed their families. Where there are more opportunities for folks to be employed, to be contributing members of society, I think a lot of the problems that create crime and punishment in the United States would be substantially alleviated. So a social entrepreneur who creates jobs and opportunities is someone I think is contributing dramatically to uh, improvement, life, and times here in the United States,
0: Absolutely. and just be more open-minded, right? I think most people just judge someone when they hear the word felon. But instead of judging, just maybe have a conversation and see what got them, you know, in that position. When I was doing my uh, service, one guy said that I was fourteen years old, and one mistake cost me twenty-five years of my life. Yes,
1: so I'm I, of the uh, opinion that. Uh, Sometimes actions speak louder than words. So, entrepreneurs, it seems to me, are people who are about taking action. And the more they can do to, as you're doing, shed light on this problem and provide the American public with alternate perspectives, another way of looking at things, including how might it make sense of and judge people who are currently doing time in prison. I think those are all contributions that will ultimately dramatically improve the life and times of. Uh, those of us here who are in the States.
0: The last question, what is your definition of courage? Courage? Yeah.
1: The ability to embrace a challenge that is both fearful and daunting, but which is worth doing and therefore worth embracing nonetheless. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much, Robert. It was such a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: Hey, you guys, thank you so, so much for listening to this podcast. I really, really appreciate your time. And if you enjoyed this episode, then make sure to subscribe because every single week I will come up with awesome and epic interviews like this one. And do not forget to check out my website, limitlessgrid.com for show notes.